welcome to episode 460 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Glad to have you on board. This week is the final week of Flashback February 2020. Flashback February is the month where we were taking a look at movies that we've previously covered here on the show with some different folks than the last time we covered the film. And this time around, we are visiting a 1960 science fiction classic. It is The Time Machine. And this week's special guest is Charles Babbage. Now, he's been on the show before, but it's been a while and not nearly as often as I'd like. So it was a real pleasure to have him on the show this week to talk about this film. The music you're hearing right now, it is from the band Bat City Surfers. It's from their album, Bat City Surfers Must Die. They are a surf band based out of Austin, Texas. You can find them at batcitysurfers.bandcamp.com. The song is titled Leviathan Infinity. I hope you like it. I do. And you're going to get a chance to hear the song in its entirety at the end of the episode. In addition to having Charles here on the show to talk about the time machine, you know we can't go a week without Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, where he's going to take a look at that iconic magazine and talk about how that magazine covered the movie we're talking about this week. Before we move on and get to all of that, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to those of you who have contributed to a recent GoFundMe campaign that I launched. Now, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter personally, you'll see that I launched this campaign. And I did kind of mention the reason for it a little bit last week. Here's the thing. My wife has uh, some tooth issues. Now, she takes care of her teeth. No new cavities. Everything's kind of fine right now as of the last appointment. But she does have to have a tooth. Well, to use the term the dentist used, elevated. She has to have a tooth removed and there's going to be the implant and everything else on top of that. And this is happening next month. It's happening here in a few days. And it's not a very cheap process. So I decided to launch this GoFundMe campaign to try to help raise some funds to cover this. Now, we did hit our initial goal, which was $600. I was told that $600 is about how much the first appointment will take. Problem is, is that there's going to be three appointments over the course of the year and it turns out, even though I thought otherwise, kind of said otherwise on the GoFundMe campaign, the final appointment is the most expensive. So I'm keeping that campaign running, even though we already hit that $600 goal. If you are able to assist in any way, please follow the link in the show notes. I'm calling the GoFundMe campaign, Fix My Wife's Mouth. So <laughs> I'm easy to find over there. Just consider sharing the link. And because I had somebody ask about this, the dentist's office that we're going to is Gentech Dentist here in Beaverton. And the first appointment happens in just under two weeks. Again, thank you to everybody who's contributed to this campaign. I am just blown away. Financially, things are kind of tight. So knowing that y'all have my back and more importantly, my wife's back, that's just special and makes me feel really good and warm and fuzzy inside. So Thank you for helping me feel fuzzy. This is getting awkward. Why don't we get on to the rest of the show right after this? King 
Kong versus Godzilla. Nothing you've ever seen can equal the thrills of this extraordinary motion picture. Nothing you've ever felt can equal its awesome fury as the mightiest monsters of the ages clash in the battle of the century. It sears the emotions with shock and terror. It staggers the imagination. All new in color. King Kong versus Godzilla. Life has many strange secrets. And none is stranger than the curse of the Blood Ghouls. In the dark of night, they leave their tombs to satisfy their need for blood. Because these demons of the undead can exist only by ravishing the living. Normal powers of love, they enslave the unwary. Uh, don't ever go away. Leaving on them the horrible telltale fang mark of the vampire. Life devouring monsters in human form. They can be anywhere, everywhere. Only by destroying them will a town gone wild with terror and fear be free of the curse of the blood ghouls. We let things pile up in the DVR. We add them to our queues. We wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays. We time shift. The Time Shifters podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's movie, The Time Machine, was first featured in FM6. We heard about that article back in Monster Kid Radio number 437 from last September when I covered that issue. That article was reprinted in the 1964 yearbook and in issue 110. A new film book of The Time Machine was featured in the last two issues of the Ackerman era of Famous Monsters, issues 190 and 191 from early 1983. It was a two-part article spanning 14 pages and featuring 16 photos. It is a detailed, from-the-script look at the movie's story. Let's take a look at how the first appearance of the monstrous Morlocks was described. Crack! George ducked in hiding. Above, winding down the narrow, rocky path, a troop of whip-wielding Morlocks was heading the docile Eloy deeper into the cavern lair. Among them was Weena, who seemed numb with fright numb and resigned to her fate. The Morlocks were terrifying to behold, green of skin, their white hair streaming down their skulls, along their arms and legs, their faces mangled and demonic, their eyes glowing with unnatural light. George swallowed his own fear and took a deep breath. As Weena passed by, he scurried from his hiding place, scooped her up and retreated. Crack! All at once, a Morlock's whip was wrapped around his throat, 
Grimacing, George yanked at the whip, and the off-balanced Morlock fell forward, uncoiling the whip. George flailed it as a dozen Morlocks closed in around him. The arrow whistled and jumped with the whips at battle, but there were so many Morlocks. One growling monster jumped George from behind, knocking him to the ground. The Morlocks closed in on him. George battled them off, but was forced to retreat, and suddenly he found himself with the Eloy in a small enclosure. There was no escape possible. It was a pen from which they would be selected, slaughtered, devoured. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Coming from gooey films, an adventure like no other. From the mind of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Watson! The year is 1896, and Sherlock Holmes faces his most peculiar case yet. The mystery of the Six Napoleons. Good, thank you. Come, Watson, the game is afoot! Joshua Kennedy as the master detective. A new and exciting Sherlock Holmes. I dare call nothing trivial, Watson, nothing. You'll remember how the dreadful case of the Abernethy family was first brought to my attention by the depth, depth which, which the, the parsley had sunk into the butter on a hot day. Yes, yes, we all know what you did. Bessie Nellis, Dr. Watson's most beautiful portrayer. It is clear that the possession of this trifling bust was worth more in the eyes of our strange criminal than that of a human life. Jonathan Danziger as Inspector Lestrade. Amy Ziliacs as Mrs. Hudson. Also starring a cavalcade of great talent. Jake Williams. Tracy Thomas. George Chapper. Michael Rosenfeld. Will McKinley. Mark Holmes. Yes, it's quite humorous if I do say so myself. Well, there it is. The Return of Sherlock Holmes. See it in Gooey School. Enterprise Log, Captain James Kirk commanding. We are leaving that vast cloud of stars and planets which we call our galaxy. The question, what is out there in the black void beyond? This is Captain Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Is there anyone on board? Is there anyone on board? Have you raised anyone, Lieutenant? Nothing, sir. It is an unmanned probe which seems to be carrying a warhead. William Shatner stars as Captain Kirk and Leonard Nimoy as science officer Spock on Star Trek in color. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good, real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. 
and his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, The Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural ghoulish and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry. Mark Temple is discreet. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. It's the final week of Flashback February. We're in the home stretch, and we're revisiting another classic film, another favorite, with another returning guest, somebody who did not cover the time machine with me the first time around. We're doing it now. Charles Babbage, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Thanks, Derek. How have things been? It's been a while since we've had John. It's busy as always, like uh, we were talking about before. It's uh, I get up, I go to work, I come home, hang out with kids, and try to watch a movie when I get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> you did make time to watch. Yeah. So you see what I did there accidentally? Did you make time uh... to watch The Time Machine? <laughs> uh, I watched it Tuesday because I thought we were recording then. And yeah. uh, <laughs> Uh, I rewatched like the last half hour of it just before I got you on the Skype machine so that I could refresh my memory because I love the finale of this thing. It's just a lot of fun. Oh, um, yeah. You know, the time machine was something that we covered here on the show back in 2015 with Christopher Page of the Orphaned Entertainment podcast and a handful of other things. So, you know. What is it? Five years later now? Let's revisit it. Why not? There you go. And I just love the idea of bringing people in to get a different point of view on these things. You know, we just had Frank Dietz on the show talking about Island of Terror, and he brought that up too, that you get a different point of view, a different viewpoint, different experience with the films. And I mean, we all love these movies. We could probably talk about the same handful of movies over and over and over again if we didn't keep ourselves in check. I think I do. I think I spend a tremendous amount of time talking about the same movies over and over again and have to remind myself repeatedly to watch something new, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, I have all of these streaming services and I don't know how many streaming services and cable and all this TV that can come in and I sit down and I scroll through the list and I inevitably click on something like The Outer Limits and just watch it again. Yeah. It's hard to pick something new sometimes. I do the same thing with Dark Shadows and the original series Star Trek. I've seen there you them go. all. I've seen the entire run more than one. Well, with 
not with Dark Shadows, but with Star Trek more than once. But oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll be flipping through. It's like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to put on Dark Shadows because it's a warm blanket, you know, it's just kind of cozy and comfortable and, and familiar. But I know there's a lot of stuff out there that I need to see. I'm actually thinking about starting a YouTube series on one of my YouTube channels where I go through my physical media collection and actually watch and talk about some of the movies that I've bought over the years, but have never bothered to watch. Oh, I've got so many of those that I've never cracked the cellophane on. I started when I had kids, you know, it's like all of a sudden the the available time started to disappear. And my video game consoles, I realized I needed to stop buying games when I had three of them sitting there that I hadn't even unwrapped. And movies are the exact same way. It's, it's really hard to keep up. I, I typically unwrap them now and put them into these <laughs> folders that I have, but then they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, and I forget that I have them. Oh, yeah, which is worse sometimes. But this one, the time machine is hard to forget about because it's just so good. That was a clunky segue, but I'm going to own it. (laughs) I wasn't going to call you out on it. Well, you know, it's just good to catch up with you, man, and to talk about this film. But you know what we got to do first? Oh, no. We got to do a round of the classic five, sir. Here we go. All right. For listeners who don't know, I really need just to record this ahead of time and and insert this one. I have to say it every single time. Monster Kid Radio has a game that we play with everybody that comes on the show. It's called the Classic Five. Each, uh, I have a deck of (laughs) cards. See, this is why I need to record it. I have a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards says this or that. What movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. It's all about classic monster movies. It's just a way to get monster kids talking or keep them talking. Are you ready to play, sir? I think so. The Classic Five! All right, here we go. Card number one. And some of these cards are actually going to be in the new deck, uh, the second deck that I'm working on that may be available here in a few months. So keep your fingers and tentacles crossed that happen. But here's card number one for you, Charles. Who never appeared in a kaiju film, but you wish they did? In a kaiju film? Yeah. Oh, boy. In a kaiju film. I have to think, who hasn't appeared in a kaiju film? Well, I, I mean, I suppose a lot of American actors haven't appeared in kaiju films, but coming up with answers like these are always the toughest. Uh, if I were to pick somebody just kind of randomly, let's go for off the wall and a Gene Hackman. <laughs> oh, wow. Why not? So, so I'm picturing him in the equivalent role of either a Steve Martin character, like in the original Godzilla, or... Uh, Russ Tamblin, maybe, you know, you know just, just switch them out for Gene Hackman. I don't know. That's totally random. I like it. I've been talking about the movie The French Connection with uh, Dr. Gangrene on Twitter. But there you go. And that's kind of what it came to mind. Some of my favorite movies are 70s movies. One of my favorite movies is The French Connection. That's sort of how it came to mind. I like it. I like it. All right. Card number two. This comes from the Universal Expansion deck. Fritz or Igor? No, that's a tough one. I think I got to go Fritz. Yeah. Over Igor, huh? Yeah. Over Lugosi. I, well, I know, I know, but it's, I, I don't know. I, Fritz, I, well, you know, I'm going to stumble here to Dwight Fry. Mm-hmm. I, I just like him. Awesome. He's awesome. Dwight Fry is terribly underrated. I hear you. But Igor's Lugosi and I'm a Lugosi guy. Team Bela, you know, just, oh. I know. Listen, that's a tough one. Dwight Fry is one of the most amazing parts of Dracula. I mean, he's part of why I can make it through that movie. I mean, I think he adds something to Frankenstein as well. So I like him a lot. Lugosi, I can't deny it, but I'll go Dwight Fry this time around. All right, card number three. Oh, this is also from the Universal Expansion deck and kind of timely because there's a new version of the Invisible Man on the way. What's your favorite follow up to the original Invisible Man? Follow up to the Invisible Man. Well, uh, sticking with Universal, uh, the Invisible Woman. Yeah, I'm going to say the Invisible Woman. 
gone. Don't you dare come back here. Why, something's still showing? Not a lot of people go for that one, but I have found myself growing more and more warm toward it lately, so. It's goofy. Sometimes I just like silly. Nothing wrong with that, man. All right, card number four. Uh, the Amazing Colossal Man or Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Oh, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Once a normal, voluptuously beautiful woman, she drove into a nightmare of horror and saw descending from the sky a titanic monster whose fearsome touch became a frightful curse. Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Incredibly huge, with incredible desires for love and vengeance. I think that one is so fun. I might be partially fond of the original because I also like the remake with Daryl Hannah. Uh, oh, thank God. That, <laughs> that one, that movie is, I think they're both sort of on the same par as far as quality. But I don't know, the original Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and the remake, I think are both charming. You should see the remake. Uh, the remake is a Christopher Guest movie, so it's it's worth checking out. I did see the remake when it originally aired on, was it an HBO movie? It was like uh, some HBO made, Showtime, yeah. Yeah, one of those. Yeah, I did see it. It's Daryl Hannah and one of the Baldwins. Daniel Baldwin, I think. I do remember it. I remember that it was a thing, but I don't remember anything else about the film. I haven't watched <laughs> it in forever. Okay, Invisible Man, Invisible I, Woman. Great. Yeah. Okay. Or, no, no, no. Back of the 50-foot woman. I'm sorry. What did I just say? Yeah. Attack and of the then Invisible Woman for the other ones. Yeah. Okay. It's all about women. You know what, listeners? This is my fifth recording this week. So <laughs> I'm not even going to edit that out. I'm just going to leave it in there. All right. Final <laughs> <laughs> final card. Uh, what in your mind is an underrated classic vampire film? You know, it's hard to know what is underrated because I listen to things like your show where everything gets their due. So what would be considered an underrated well, uh, how about, okay, and this is going to be just a step outside of classic. Okay, that's fine. A step outside of classic or what you might consider classic period in uh, in the wheelhouse of Monster Kid Radio. But we'll say the pilot movie for Kolchak the Night Stalker. Because to me, more people need to see that. It's awesome. It's kind of terrifying. 70s movie, TV movie that is actually scary. There are plans to uh, talk about the Kolchak TV movies as well as the series during Dan December 2020 later this year at the end of the year. Uh, oh, they right. are. Yeah, I, I love the Kolchak movies. I think the second one I feel like doesn't get as much attention, but that's not a vampire film. You know, the vampire in the first one. That's terrifying. Yeah. And it's a great answer. And that was the final card. How do you feel? You survived. Uh, yeah, I stumbled that one, but uh, we'll, we'll uh, do better next time. <laughs> ah, no, man. No wrong answers. No wrong answers. It's all good. It's, you just kind of loosen us up. Get us ready yeah. to talk about, the, like we need an excuse to talk about these movies. <laughs> Such stories as H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea have challenged mankind. So today, man is successfully probing deep into the mysteries of the universe. Can he penetrate the greatest mystery of all, time itself? Why is it that we usually ignore the fourth dimension? You, you see, we can move in the other three. As the doctor said, up, down, forwards, backwards, sideways. But when it comes to time, we are prisoners. Inventor Rod Taylor's breakthrough into the realm of the fourth dimension is defied by his friend Alan Young. If that machine can do what you say it can, Destroy it, George, before it destroys you. Every moment is a year. 
hurtling through the atomic wars of the future on an incredible excursion into the unknown. So the Time Machine, 1960, George Powell, incredible production design. Love the sets, love the colors, love the lighting, love the performances, just love the movie. And it's one of your favorites. Absolutely. I do not remember the first time I saw it. I'm sure it was somewhere in that time period of, uh, you know, when I was a... A kid watching the Channel 12 Saturday afternoon movies where they showed things like the time machine and King Kong versus Godzilla and every other kind of genre thing you can think of, the classic stuff. And time machine stuck with me, although it was not my first exposure to the story. It was the first movie that I saw. Obviously, it was I guess it's the only movie of the time machine that was made until the remake in 2002, wasn't it? I keep imagining that more attempts would be made because it's H.G. Wells. There's only been two versions, haven't there? Yeah, there's the Time Machine 60 and 2002. Yeah. It was done again. Elements of it ended up in Time After Time. Yeah, true. Yeah. But yeah, it's not really a true... Which is also a fantastic movie. You know, that one is one that I haven't watched in forever. I keep meaning to go back and check it out. It's a lot of fun. I won't deviate too far, but it's a lot of fun. And Nicholas Meyer, obviously, wrote and directed probably everybody's favorite Star Trek movie, Star Trek Two. But the interesting thing to me is he did Time After Time, where you have H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper coming to present-day San Francisco, or present-day 1979 San Francisco. So there's this fish-out-of-water story with Malcolm McDowell. And in Star Trek Four. All of the San Francisco stuff, the fish out of water stuff with the crew in San Francisco was also written by Nicholas Meyer. So there's this weird kind of interesting comparison. Well, and time after time as well, isn't uh, Mary Steenburgen in that? Yes. And she ended up being the love interest in Back to the Future 3. Yes. Because, and she talks about reading H.G. Wells. And so that's there's a right. lot of other little things here and there. Well, it was Jules Verne. It was really oh. Jules Verne. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Have you seen the 2002 time machine? I've never seen it. Absolutely. And while there's a 70% of a movie there that I think is good, there's this other percentage where uh, somebody got their hands in their studio suits, whoever you want to blame. I don't know uh, all the backstory where they deviated so far from the core story that it kind of messes up the movie and, and it makes it ultimately a disappointment at the end. But the production design is really cool. Uh, with the exception of the Morlocks. And, you know, we'll get into Morlock stuff, I'm sure, in a little bit. Oh, no. But, yeah. um, but the um, time machine, the design for the time machine itself is fantastic. And it's one of the, I mean, in the last, you know, 20 years, I have not seen such a pretty movie prop. And they did such a great job. And conceptually, it's interesting, you know, where they use a lot of these Fresnel lenses as, the motivation for how the, the time machine works and just design wise, I, I think it's a very pretty machine that it's a disappointment that it's not surrounded by a little bit better movie. But Guy Pierce was really good. And there's some really interesting concepts um, And the I'll, I will say this before we move on. I, one of the interesting things about the remake to me is, is it is a remake of George Powell's movie. It's not necessarily a version going back to the source material. Because the uh, the Time Machine book, while George Powell's movie follows the book very closely, there's a few elements that are added to the, the 1960 movie that I think help the movie a lot. Actually, they're really good additions to the story. Um, both his connection to Weena is a little bit stronger in the movie version than it is in the book. And... Uh, there's some other scenes that we can go through as we move along, but like the scene with the library 
you remember with the rings, the talking rings. Yeah. There's that similar scene in uh, the 2002 movie where, I mean, that becomes a very important element. And none of that's actually, it's not in the book in the same way. In the book, there aren't the talking rings and and the same sort of exposition uh, done in the same way. In the book, it's a lot more internal in uh, in the time traveler's head. By the way, he doesn't even have a name in the book. He's just called the time traveler. I haven't read that book in forever. I don't remember. I know I read it. It was one of those things that I, I picked up during a, like a book fair in grade school or something. You, know, you go into the library and there's all these books you can buy for a dollar. And I picked up the time machine and Phantom of the Opera and Dracula because I was a nerdy little monster kid then you know and I, and I picked those up war of the worlds and i read them but i can't remember the last time i read the book i went through it recently just getting ready for this of course because i, I was like I, it's been a long time since i had gone through it as well and you know somebody actually gave me uh we have these secret santa gift exchanges at work uh, yeah. and somebody gave me and i still to this day i mean this was like seven years ago somebody gave me the uh, full collection of hj wells books or stories in a compilation in one book with the time machine and a bunch of others and i have no idea who gave it to me but they knew me very well it fits on my shelf perfectly that's awesome yeah the only other thing i'd say about the 2002 time machine is i always thought it was cool that it was directed by hg wells great grandson oh yeah I always thought that was neat. I, I don't know anything about the guy. I just thought it was kind of cool that they had that connection. Yeah. yeah and, and I don't know if he's uh, directed anything else. I haven't yeah. looked, but uh, he's not a name that comes up much if he, if he, if he does. Yeah. Simon, I think. Simon Wells. Yeah. So. Well, anyways, I, I actually recommend checking it out. I won't ruin it for you. There's there's some interesting changes in the, the end that was clearly a somebody's decision. There needed to be a more action-packed ending, but. Um, okay. I'll leave it at that. I'm sure many listeners know what I'm talking about. Anyway, that's not what we're talking. Just kind no. of a sidetrack, kind yeah. of uh, get back on track. <laughs> Easy to do. <laughs> it really is. Well, the original going yeah, back the to original. Yeah. yeah, it's it's one of those movies that's it's hard to describe where it fits into my best list or my top ten list. It's 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 one that I always go to, and if somebody ever grabs me and says, "What's your favorite top ten uh, sci-fi movies?" You know, Twilight Zone, uh, or excuse me, Twilight Zone. Uh, well, <laughs> Twilight Zone TV series obviously is going to be on there. Well, yeah. uh, to the Time Machine. I'm sorry. I've been watching Outer Limits and Twilight Zones and things just because I've been in that mood. And so it's all in my head right now. The The Time Machine is always in that list. You know, Forbidden Planet is always in that list. Metropolis is always in that list. Oh, yeah. And I can't think of, you know, another movie that, you know, at that time when I was, you know, nine years old, probably the first time I saw it captured my imagination so much the the idea of the time machine the production design the design of the time machine itself the morlocks when you get to them i always thought were just like the creepiest creatures and you know i mean looking back at it now it's uh, it's just a bunch of overweight guys with uh, white hair but it was still really <laughs> cool at the time and it still uh, is cool man i don't know what you're yeah. talking about <laughs> yeah i'll say here because i said it when i covered this film with christopher page I was a relatively new convert to the time machine because I had not seen it before I watched it for that podcast. So this has only been in my life for like five years. Oh, wow. But I'll tell you, I've watched it three or four times since then. I don't know how I missed it. It was just one of those ones that's been on the list. I knew I should watch it and just never got around to it. And I'm, I don't know if you or any of the listeners have lists of these classics that they keep meaning to watch because they know they're supposed to, they're supposed to be good. 
The Incredible Shrinking Man's on that list for me, too. I've just never watched it. I know it's important. I know it's good. I know what happens in it. I've just never sat down to watch it. So The Time Machine, for me, I've been watching it off and on over the past five years, and that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've got several model kits of The Time Machine from the movie. I've got, I'm staring right at an action figure of a Morlock on my wall. Oh, Wow. I'm sure you saw my Halloween photos from a number of years ago where my wife and I dressed up as Morlocks for Halloween. Oh, man. And, uh, yep. <laughs> and, uh, and I've had some fortunate encounters after we did those costumes. I had the opportunity to go to Bob Burns' basement and take a tour and saw the time machine in person. And the place is, first of all, his, his museum is overwhelming. There is so much, so much stuff that is from my childhood down there. I was overwhelmed. I didn't know what to say when I'm standing there staring at the time machine. And of course, Kathy Burns gave me the tour and she's wonderful. And she grabbed the remote and turned the time machine on and sitting there spinning oh, the lights wow. are going. And, oh. and yeah, I was on the edge of tears. I mean, it was just, it was so fantastic. Um, and of course, as a thank you to them, I gave one of my uh, Morlock masks that I made for our Halloween costumes uh, mounted to a wall plaque with a nice inscription to them to put with their time machine. Although they had some, they had, of course, naturally, they've got some good Morlock stuff down there too. But I gave them one of mine as well. Wow. So you've got something in the Bob Burns Museum is what we're uh, taking away from I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hey, there you go. You've made it, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Bob Burns story about how he got the time machine, I knew that story as well before yeah. I'd seen the movie that, you know, it came up for auction. They couldn't afford it. He kind of gave up on it. Then they stumbled across it years later. And yeah, just amazing. An amazing I, restoration uh, on it. God, the machine just looks awesome. I've been posting more and more lately about my return to the hobby of Lego. And I've gone online and looked up and so many people have made like little Lego models of the original time machine. Yeah. It just, they look so cool. That That's about as far as I'm going to be able to get in terms of like getting a model of the time machine anytime soon. I think it's building one of my own out of Lego brick. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they just, it's just a neat design. Yeah. I love the DeLorean. You know, I, I love all this other time travel stuff. Time travel movies are special to me but this design is my absolute favorite for yeah. time machines so good i don't even know what to narrow it down to you know it's just the right combination of fantastic victorian the the geniuses behind it you know there's there's gene warren senior and wa chang uh wa mi chang they were instrumental in the design of that uh, time machine you know the little model that you see at the beginning when george is demonstrating his machine or the idea mm -hmm. of, of time travel, trying to explain it to his four friends. That little model was built by Waming Chang and it just had this artistic eye that, you know, knew how to pull together all these right elements. You couldn't even really narrow it down to a time period when you look at that machine. I mean, yeah, there's some Victorian elements, but there's it's more than that, you know, it's kind of this hybrid of of things. I'm not familiar with you saying Wa Chang, Wa Li yeah, Chang. Wa, is the same? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Wa Chang. He, okay. Wa Chang is a special effects designer, prop maker, uh, makeup person. He's responsible for so much of the stuff that I know that that you love, I love. He's best known for all his work on Star Trek. Okay. Uh, in the original series. I mean, the Gorn was his. Okay, uh, okay. The Telosians from the cage were his. Going to the communicator, the tricorder were designs by him. He manufactured those props. He did the Vulcan harp. 
He did the tribbles. I mean, he had his wow. hand in everything. And there were obviously, you know, like the phaser isn't directly him. Uh, I think Matt Jeffries did original designs for it. But Wa Chang did the, the modifications and, and a redesign necessary to make it a good prop. Okay. And, but more importantly, he had a good relationship with George Powell. And he's responsible for things like Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. And when I say that, uh, things like the stop motion effects and, and visual effects and that. Another person with the time machine that also worked on Seven Faces, Dr. Lau, William Tuttle, who did the makeup for the Morlocks, is the one responsible for all the makeup for Tony Randall. And he won a special Oscar for that, too, which actually he's the first person to win an Oscar for special makeup effects. Oh, before, okay, yeah. Before Rick Baker, you know, before it became an official category, Rick Baker won for when it became a, an actual ballot or or what would you call it, a... Uh, a category a category yeah. on the ballot. That's the word I'm looking for. It is late, folks. I am tired. <laughs> um, yeah, when it became a category on the ballot, uh, Rick Baker was the first to one in 81 for American Werewolf. But back in, I want to say, 67, I might be wrong about that, William Tuttle won a special Oscar. It was a one-time Oscar for Seven Faces of Dr. Lau uh, for all the makeup in that, which was fantastic stuff. Uh, well, I had no idea. I uh, See, this is why I'm glad you're here, because you've got all the research. And all I've got is I've watched the movie a bunch of times. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's one of my weird, I you know, I always wanted to, I mean, I kind of ended up doing it for a living anyways, but I, I always wanted to do special makeup effects or special effects as a yeah. career. You know, I mean, as a 12-year-old, that's what my goal was, you know, puppets and special effects. And, and so my career ended up kind of going in that direction. I get to do... A lot of that same stuff now and his puppets and live effects. And, and I, I'm not working on film, but I'm doing a lot of the same stuff and the same materials and the same technology and, and everything else and seen by millions of people. But it's not it's always doesn't have quite the same shine as saying you did it for, you know, a movie like The Time Machine or something like that. But interestingly, so I've re always researched it. Uh, I've, I've just absorbed everything that I could get my hands on. I've been fortunate enough to get to know people that had to do it for a living or had done it for a living. And, and so I'm always picking their brains about, you know, about history. And so, yeah, people like Waming Chang, I've been familiar with who he was forever. I don't even know how long, uh, because of all the things that he was, had his hands in and William Tuttle and, and guys like that. William Tuttle, I mean, that watching and William Tuttle both did things for outer limits and, Twilight Zone. Well, you know, William Tuttle, I know Duff did Twilight Zone, Eye of the Beholder and makeups, things like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I'm always, always looking at their stories, you know, trying to buy, buy books and read, read as much as I can about them or all the bonus features on DVDs are, of course, awesome. Internet, of course, has improved all of that research. I don't know where I would have been if I had the Internet when I was nine. I mean, kids are so lucky now. I was just a film nerd that every time he went to the library, he'd try to look up something about movies and exhausted the local library's resources in about a, a week because, oh yeah, you know, no internet, you know, you basically have what you have and, you know, who's going to let a little nine-year-old or, or whatever do an interlibrary loan for something that he doesn't even know exists. And yeah, 
It's it's a sickness, uh, an obsession. I love it. You know, I mentioned earlier all these DVDs and Blu-rays that I have here that I've never watched. Part of the reason why I've picked them up is because, hey, this has got a cool special feature. Exactly. You know, and, and then I set it aside because I've got three or four dozen others that are on the list waiting for my attention. We call it research, you know, to kind of feel maybe a little <laughs> bit better about it. But really, we yeah. just love this stuff. We, exactly. I read this stuff for fun, you know? Yeah. You know, even if I didn't do this stuff for a living, I would still be absorbing all of this. I would be looking at the history of these guys and and trying to find all this behind the scenes stuff and looking at how they are building the models or doing the makeup. It's just for fun. You know, I just love absorbing that information. And sometimes it pays off. Sometimes you get to be on a podcast to talk about it. And exactly. Make it all worth it. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll I, let you know when the $20 shows up. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. <laughs> I love the little model. That's the one yeah. that I want, you know, one to put on my desk. And he's so nonchalant about sending it to the future and like, oh, yeah. that's it. It's gone that's now. It. It's, it's like, never going to no. see it again. Ah. <laughs> Where I, did you send it? I want to. Sad story about that model. It was oh, no. it was in George Powell's personal collection. Uh-huh. He had a big collection of artifacts from his own movies and and other things. And unfortunately, he had a house fire, and so all of that was lost, including that little model. <sighs> that was a moment of silence for the little model there. Um, that's too bad. <laughs> that's too bad. So, anyways, back to the story. Yeah, with the novel, they don't spend a lot of time talking about how. He does it right. It just, uh, Hey, I've got a time machine. Yeah. Now, right? There's, there's a little bit of discussion. I should say a little bit of, of narration about, I wouldn't say the mechanics of it. I don't think HG Wells put too much thought into that, but he does talk about the design of the machine and the look of the machine, which is interesting. I will say going back to the 2002, actually that machine kind of represents a better description of what's in the book with the brass and the nickel and the, crystals as as he calls it in the novel but you know they do it with sort of these lenses so he does do a description or or give a pretty good good description of the machine and as far as the materials and overall look but he doesn't talk anything about the mechanics it's more conceptual and so when the time traveler the book is entirely in narration which actually i think helps the the narration i have to remember now even though i just went through it i think it's basically philby's narration and he's always referring to George as the time traveler because, they, again, no name. But at one point, his narration becomes the narration of the time traveler uh, when he's actually doing his. Well, we'll get to this when he comes back and starts talking about his his events in the movie. Uh, one thing I love is is the casting of his four friends. First of all, we have the casting of George himself, but his friend Philby, Alan Young, is one of my favorites. His voice has just always been burned into my brain because of, you know, Scrooge McDuck. Uh, see, for me, it's Mr. Ed. Mr. Ed? You know, right. I didn't come across Mr. I didn't really get into Mr. Ed until later. And I, I shouldn't even say I got into it. I watched Mr. Ed. Nick at Night or something, or TV That's Land? A, Nick at Night, yeah. probably. It, it was Nick at the Night at the time, I think, yeah. And so I certainly watched or Mr. Ed, but but I knew him from the time machine first. And I definitely knew him from uh, as Scrooge McDuck before that. For me, it was Mr. Ed first and then learning he did all this animation after that. Yeah. Which I had no idea. You know, I mean, as a kid, Nickelodeon showing these black and white movies that, or TV shows at night that as a dumb kid, I was like, oh, these are boring. These are stupid. Hey, there's a talking horse. That's cool. <laughs> you know, then I end up watching that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he's yeah. good. Oh man, yeah. his his range of the ability to do these accents that are just right 
up to the line of being absurd. Right. You know, just right close, almost there, but they work. He's fun to watch in that opening scene. Sebastian Cabot always cracks me up. Oh, I love him. I love Sebastian Cabot so much. <laughs> yeah. I always find him amusing. He's probably the one guy I could play in that in that room. <laughs> and uh, It's the beard, right? Yeah, the beard. it's probably the beard. And the impatience. Um, <laughs> and then Wet Bissell, you know, and Wet Bissell, oh. you know, he's one of those guys you just see in everything. He's easy to remember because his name is so fun to say. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I love Wet Bissell, though. I mean, I loved him. Obviously, creature he's in that, but I yeah. love him most. I think for the uh, the the dual villain roles he plays, and I was a teenage werewolf, and then again, and I was a teenage right. Frankenstein. I know he's I'll, he's a big bad in both of those, and it's great. Uh, another depressing thing: you can't get those movies on Blu-ray or DVD. Oh, that's a whole thing. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. we won't go there. That's a whole yeah. other. That's a whole show in of itself. It really is. <laughs> Uh, but uh, no, Whit Bissell's great, and I never really thought about it, but you're absolutely right. His name is just fun to say. <laughs> but uh, Rod Taylor, you know, of course, he's great. Uh, Rod Taylor, as I was watching it this this time around, I was having a hard time focusing because every time I looked at him, I kept thinking, you know, Bill Pullman and Rod Taylor sure look an awful lot alike. Oh, wow. And And I almost could imagine Bill Pullman playing this part in this movie. No, you're absolutely right. I hadn't considered, but now I'm going to see it every time I see him. Wow. Rod Taylor, of course. I mean, that guy has been in a massive amount of stuff. I think the last thing he was in was in Glorious Bastards is Winston Churchill. You know, I, of course, everybody knows him from The Birds. Now that I do know him from was The Birds. <laughs> he's one of those great working actors that just popped up in everything. And he's so good. He's a great leading man. You know, he's he's got even more authority than I, I feel like some of the other quote-unquote classic leading men do for these types of movies why he's in this movie i have no idea because he's almost too good for it you know he's just that good yeah you kind of need somebody like him because yeah there there are moments where when he finally gets to the future i know we're jumping around here but when he gets to the future and he's encountering the eel you need somebody at that moment when when he realizes how uh, apathetic they are you need somebody that has some emotion or can display some emotions like what is wrong with you people and you know i think he does a good job without getting too over the top displaying his frustration whether what he's discovered the future has become right he's got all these grand ideas about what humanity would have achieved by now and yeah not so much so yeah he does have that that reaction right. that again it's not it's it's almost to the edge, just like with you know Alan Young. It's almost to the edge and gone too far. But it's it's that's nice balance where he walks between. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling now because I'm kind of. <laughs> but at, at any rate, he's he's fantastic, and he demonstrates his machine for his friends, explains to them what it does, and of course, none of them believe him, and they all leave sort of in in a you know, subtle way. I won't say making fun of him, but just, you know, their disbelief frustrates him. And, uh, and so they, they take off and he goes back into the house and finds that Alan Young is still, or, or, you know, Philby is still sitting there and Philby is concerned, concerned for his friend that he might be going off the deep end, maybe a little bit. Philby asks him to promise that he's not to go anywhere. And of course (laughs) my favorite, my favorite, my favorite get out card that Rod Taylor uses here is I promise I won't set a foot out the door. Yeah. And of course, well, of course not. All he's going to do is go into his lab and sit in his time machine. 
So technically he didn't leave, right? He didn't leave the lab. I, I love the interaction between the two of these two. Yeah. You can tell that they've got a deep friendship, uh, a deep respect for each other, and, and a deep care for each other. Philby doesn't want him to go and do anything crazy. You really feel the compassion between these two friends. And especially Alan Young, I mean, does a really great job conveying that, that he, he cares about what his friend's going through at the moment yeah. and uh, sure. or, or how he's doing. But at any rate, he promises he won't go anywhere. Philby goes on his way. But of course, he walks out to the lab and sits in his machine. And that's where we start some of the most interesting conceptual effects in the movie. And this really fun element that you don't get in the book. They they kind of humanize the the idea of time travel with the mannequin across the street. In the book, you don't have such a direct relationship with what's going on. There's description of the events changing, even description of a snail racing across the floor, which you also get in the movie. But his narration about his observation of the mannequin changing styles, I think is actually a really fun element to show the passage of time and the changing styles, and so on. You kind of forget, or at least I did, and I do this every time I watch the movie, I kind of forget that the movie was actually produced in 1960. So, of course, this film that is set at the, the turn of the century, yeah. of course the fashions and the things they're going to see, at least up in the future up through 1960, really was the fashion really was the culture right. up through 1960. So I kind of forget that a little bit when I watch this movie. It's like, oh man, they really got that right. Oh wait, yeah, <laughs> of course they got it right. Yeah, that's a, it's a good point. They do a good job setting the time period, the yeah. time period of uh, turned to 1900. The production design and the and just the overall setting was captured really well. The advancement of time, the, the snail, the mannequin. This is how we know it's a George Powell movie. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's all the palisms are happening here. The, the cool visual effects, the colors, uh, the stop motion, the miniatures, all of it. Yep. It's all right in this travel sequence. And it's so it, that's one of my favorite things about time travel movies. I love the DeLorean getting up to 88 miles per hour. Right, I love that. I love Bill and Ted's phone booth doing what it needs to do. I just love the way it looks. And this is such a unique look for time travel. I dig yeah, it. and I think captures really well the idea with the speeding up of the mm-hmm. the sun passing overhead and the moon passing overhead in a flash to where it becomes a strobe and 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 then it's going so fast it's just continuous light with the you know, you know see the construction cranes outside to all of a sudden build up a high rise building in in a second you know which is some fun animation yeah he actually comes to a stop. After the windows get boarded up and then he gets out and to investigate why the light went away. What I think we're at 1917 is where he stops and he goes out to investigate and then comes across his boarded up. His house is all boarded up. Everything's in cobwebs and he goes outside. The clothing store is still there. And when he walks up, he thinks Philby, but it turns out to be his son. It's neat. It's kind of cool to see that happen. Philby's son tells him that uh, his Philby was killed in a war. Right. In the war. That there's a war going on or there was a war going on. Of course, he's talking about World War One at that point. Mm-hmm. When he gets back into the time machine and moves forward and he sees all of the bombing that's happening around him, he thinks it's a continuation that it's still that first war that he was told about. But in fact, it's, it's World War II at that point. 
and he pieces together that oh no okay now we've now we've entered a second war and so that's that begins his disillusion with you know the way humans are progressing you know it's is is the third stop or i should say the second stop when he gets out it's because he hears the sound that i mentioned before and and that sound is an air raid siren and at right. this point i think that's where we're finally in the 60s and and he he goes out and the air raid siren is going on and people are moving along and there's these guys in uniforms what look like radiation suits or or uh these you know reflective suits ushering people away to a shelter by the way during that moment if you watch the movie again you'll see a person wearing the same uniform as the flight crew from Forbidden Planet oh really Yes. <laughs> Darn, I have to watch the movie again. I have to watch again. I noticed that the other day. And uh, <laughs> I was like, I I'd never picked up on that before. I'm sure many other people have, but that, is, that was the first time I noticed it. But then he goes across the street again, and this old man is ushering him along. And it turns out to be Philby's son and is now an old man. And, of course, Rod Taylor hasn't aged a day, but, you know, this man ends up recognizing him. And they have a brief conversation about the uh, well, a very brief conversation <laughs> about uh, yeah. uh, what's going on. This idea that you know now we're in like a third world war, and uh, there's atomic bombs going off, and this is in 1966. The movie's yes. in 1960, but the time period they're in is it's only six years after you know when the movie was made. So right. of course that's that's what's on everybody's mind. You know, it's no surprise that it's easy to imagine the world getting into a third world war at that point. Right. Of course, I guess I suppose it's still imaginable today, but it hasn't quite happened yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, on that note. <laughs> so, uh, but, so this actually begins another sequence of special effects that I've always thought was really fun. And when I was a kid, I wasn't quite sure how they did it. But of course, now knowing it's all I can see when the bombs go off and there's all the destruction happening and George is getting back to this time machine, this area is starting to for whatever reason, the bombs cause lava to come up from the ground and start sweeping through the city streets. And the lava, I thought, was like, how did they do that? And, of course, it's just oatmeal. That's all it is. <laughs> is that what they use? Yeah, they used oatmeal. <laughs> and the way that it's lit and things like that make it look like lava. I thought that was amusing, that it was oatmeal. Never knew that as a kid. but I love that, though. Knowing these things just makes the experience of watching the movies even more rich yeah. for me. Uh, I love the lava coming in and we're fast forwarding again. He's going further and further and further into the future. And it's a good, what, 800,000 years. I mean, it's way off. Yeah. And he, he gets in there and he just slams the hammer down and goes forward. It's going as fast as he can. And, and that, that's where we have the biggest jump. Yeah. It's like 800,000 years and a very long time. Well, and a big part of that's because the lava encased him. He got that's trapped right. in rock. So he just had to keep going forward to hopefully <laughs> yeah. uh, have the rock wear away or get worn away through erosion or through time. Going backward wasn't an option, apparently. He just wanted to keep going forward. Yeah. And he does get out, you know, and uh, yeah. let's see. The year was 8,002,701. Something catches his eye and he stops the machine suddenly, which... Always seems like a bad idea to slam on the brakes. Um, <laughs> and, of course, it causes the machine to spin and then and then toss him out. I always thought that was kind of an, an interesting effect. One thing that the time machine 
and all time travel movies. I think maybe Back to the Future answers this maybe a little bit, but the idea that, and maybe I thought about this way too much later, but you're going forward in time or you're going backward in time and everybody pops in to the new time in the same location that they left. I think the time machine really started this idea, but none of it takes into account. Sure, they talk about the things changing around them, but none of them take into account the fact that the planet is moving around the sun. And would your time machine, if you didn't time it right, just kind of end up like floating in space if you stopped? I think that's probably what would happen. But Right. And this is actually something that I started thinking about, not because of time travel, but I remember reading an X-Men comic a while back where the uh, Kitty Pride character is phasing between objects or whatever. Right. And there's some internal monologue or, or thought bubble where she makes a comment about how she has to take into consideration the fact that the earth is moving. She can't just phase in and phase out because interesting she might phase into something solid. And then my brain went, yeah, and that's how time travel works too. So <laughs> <laughs> you're right there with me, man. Yeah. That, nobody adds that element. It's a little too complicated to keep track of that stuff, I think. But um, there's probably no another tangent here. There's probably no safe way to do time travel in that sense be in that speed because you could never calculate exactly what is going to be where at any given time. So you probably would just either end up floating in space or inside of a mountain or whatever. Yeah. Time travel doesn't work, but they're awesome movies. Oh man. Man, if it did, Oh, the <laughs> trouble I'd get into. But anyway, you're right. Slamming on the brakes, bad idea. He gets thrown from the machine, but he's okay. And the machine's okay. And even though I've watched this movie a few times now, every time that happens, I'm worried that the machine is broken. Oh, I know. I'm worried that the prop is broken. How's he going to get home? <laughs> but it's fine. And he's exploring this new landscape and, and it's lush and it's green. And it's like, we got over the war and, well, he tips his time machine back up. Yeah, he's got to put it back up. Yeah. Got to put it back up. And he takes the key out, the nice crystal handled key that happens to be like 10 inches long and puts it in his pocket. And I'm thinking to myself, I would have made smaller keys. That's on him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking the rest. Just think about the rest of the movie. He's got that thing in his pocket the entire time. <laughs> it's 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 like carrying like extra large microphone in your pocket. I. I think it would be pretty uncomfortable. But anyways, <laughs> he makes his way through the greenery, looking at the various plants. The other thing is this narration is continuing. Um, Rod Taylor, this is one thing that's really consistent with the book is up to this point, by the way, is really close to the book. Yeah. Pretty much the beats are, are all there, including the machine coming to a stop quickly and, and him falling out of it and the machine stopping in front of these doors uh, and then him walking through and coming across the Eloy all hanging out by a river. Now, of course, the Eloy presented in the movie, a definitely, a we'll just say a mid-century view of how, <laughs> how, how humans evolve. Uh, mid-century American view, you know, they're very, you know, white, blonde, uh, um, uh, humans. And, uh, uh, in the book, they're not described so, um, um, Aryan blonde. <laughs> yeah. I was going to I wasn't even going to use the word, but yes, you're absolutely right. That's the word. And, and in the book, they've got reddish eyes and, they were once human, but they're definitely described more as 
evolved. They're former human, you know, over, I mean, it's been hundreds of thousands of years. So of course they have diverged quite a bit. They do not look human. Okay. And they're small and petite. And it's interesting because he actually, Wells, embraces this idea of, of evolution. What used to be humans definitely have become something else. Sure. They, they've gone on to another step. But in the movie, in 1960, it would have been very challenging to do that visually. So eh, we have white people with blonde hair. So he's there by the river and he, then he starts hearing screaming. And a woman has fallen into the river and is starting to drown. And everybody's just standing around watching. She even floats up next to a rock and is being pulled under. And on the rock that she floats up next to, uh, two guys are just sitting there watching. It's like, huh, you know. Yeah, no big deal. Totally whatever. Yeah, whatever. whatever. Yeah. So, of course, as most people would, he, he jumps in and, and pulls her out. Yeah. When she comes to, she's like, Okay, whatever. And gets up and walks off. It felt very um now it's on my brain on my mind because of watching what we were talking about earlier. It felt like a Star Trek episode. Like a completely foreign civilization acting in a way that is completely bewildering to us humans, you know. It just ha- kind of gave me that vibe, especially with the colors and all that. And that's not a bad thing. It's you know, I love Star Trek. So uh but yeah, it's just so bizarre and it really sets George off. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. But he yeah. still wants to kind of learn a little bit more cuz like in the book apparently these are a bunch of real pretty people. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Weena is a very attractive young woman. Yvette Mamou. She was young. I mean, too young to do anything about, but yeah. she's very pretty. She was interesting. <laughs> there, there interesting, are, huh? <laughs> yeah. There are moments. I think she does a good job with what she's given. But now part of this, the writing for her is, of course, the fact that she's Eloy. And so there's a sort of a, in some ways, a lack of curiousness, uh, curiosity curiousness is probably not much of a word but curiosity that she displays to a point and it starts to turn around a little bit and it's a bit of apathy and so she's very stiff in in a lot of the delivery but but i also think this particular character they didn't write her probably as well as they could there are moments that come up when george is talking about you know where he comes from and it's another time and she throws out lines like, in your time, how do women wear their hair? And it causes me, I, I think it caused me to cringe when I watched it at nine. I mean, it just yeah. seems so out of place, out of character. They're trying to create a moment. They're trying to create moments between Weena and George and create a connection, you know, the writers. But the way they do it here is, I think, pretty clunky. You know, we run into this, though, in these genre films from previous eras you know the way women characters are handled or written she's not given a lot of meat to that character her character is really one note would i be pretty do you have a special person like me back there it's like oh yeah these are the things you're worried about yeah yeah it's 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 always a little unfortunate going back and revisiting these movies and and you have to confront the the time they were written in Mm -hmm. try to enjoy all the positives that the movie gives, which there's a lot in this. Oh yeah. It's it's, honestly, it's one minor scene to me, excuse me, in the movie that, that if I could remember where it is when I'm watching, I'd probably skip past it, but, uh, it's minor. We move on to, uh, getting a little more explanation. He goes back to the entryway where his 
where he parked the time machine to discover that it's gone, which basically starts from this point, the adventure of the rest of the movie. And I might be jumping around here a little bit. I'm trying to remember if as he's, I think actually before he discovers it's gone, he has Weena. He's asking her about education and books and they have a library. And so they walk over to this other side of this dining hall where everybody's sitting eating. And uh, there is a very, very, very dusty library with books. And he picks one up. And of course, it obviously hasn't been touched forever. And it crumbles and turns to dust in his hands, which is actually a pretty cool effect. Oh, it's a really great effect. I don't. Do you know how it was accomplished? I do not. I wish I did. I'm sure some sort of, you know, just, just, uh, you know, I can't even speculate. I have no idea how it was done. I've got a book that my grandparents gave me when I was in fifth grade and it was called the giant book of sneaky feats. And it was a book of like different tricks and, and stunts that you can do and and walks you through doing it all and all that. I don't, I think that's how I learned how to fold a dollar bill into a ring, you know, (laughs) through this book. And there's a thing in the book. I remember talking about how to tear a phone book in half and it involves baking it, putting it in the oven and, and baking it for a particular period of time to the point to where the paper gets brittle, but it doesn't, burn so then you pull out the phone book and it's like hey look i can tear a phone book in half see how strong i am you know oh yeah so i i wonder if maybe it was just some really brittle paper they made they printed the book i mean i don't know absolutely i mean i'm sure it was something along those lines it could be something similar that it could be you know sort of cast combination of pigmented you know you barely all you have to do is barely add any water to plaster and you can create a plaster piece that'll hold its shape but you touch it wrong and it'll totally fall back to dust. So, you know, there's all sorts of things like that. Uh, I'm sure techniques. Great effect. Yes. But in this room is where they discover or, or she shows him the talking rings. Yeah. And that is, I think, a really helpful element to the movie. The book solves this problem by the fact that the narration, Philby, and his narration, it's kind of a little convoluted in the way it's written in the book, but it's it's all in George's head. He pieces, or I should say the time traveler's head, he pieces together the whole backstory of how the Eloy and the Morlocks split off. And there's a lot of narration about the society and how it could have developed and then diverged. Okay. In the movie, you get the talking rings, which are rings that they spin on this table that through some mechanics tell a story or recite history and and this one thing that's really cool is the uh the t- the voice of the rings is Paul Freeze <laughs> and uh Paul Freeze he's one of those guys that his voice is in so much stuff uh he well first of all he's an actor i mean he was in things like Tor 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 and things like that but he, but he also did voices on like the original Fantastic 4 uh, animated series from the 60s. Yeah. You know, Paul Freeze, I mean, he's, he's a man of a zillion voices. Oh, of course, Paul Freeze, Haunted Mansion. Yep. Uh, great voice. Oh, yeah. He's the narration for the rings. That's where you learn about the Morlocks and the Eloy and the divergent species, as it were. They both came from man, but at some point there was a split. Uh, some people decided to go underground after the war to 
whatever. And some people decided to stay up above and that's where the split happened and they continued to evolve from there. And yeah. those that went underground, even though they look like brutes, they look like monsters of the Morlocks, they actually seem to have better technology than those up and above, which <laughs> I thought was a nice yeah. compare. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It's just a nice touch. Yeah. As it turns out, the Morlocks are the providers for the Eloy and the food and the clothing, while not really shown in the movie, it's definitely mentioned in the book and implied in the book. The Morlocks are the providers of all these things. Yeah. After this, George decides to go back to his time machine and Weena's with him. And that's when he discovers that the machine is gone. Yeah. And has been dragged in behind these doors at this Sphinx statue that he originally arrived in front of. And so, of course, now he's got to figure out how to get to his machine. Yeah. He and Weena start to go back, but it's dark. And so they decide to stop and build a fire. But then that's when we first get our glimpse at Morlocks. And they show up to try to capture Weena. Weena doesn't want to be outside. They don't want to be outside at night. You know, they got to get back. She's like, no, 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 we'll just make a fire. It's no big deal. No, we must go. Yeah, and then the Morlock. The Morlock, when you first see him, and throughout the entire film, every time you see him, man, they're just cool looking. You said you have an action figure of him. I'm jealous. Yeah. I mean, they just look cool. And it's not here, but later on in the film when they're underground in the caves, when George is walking around trying to be all sneaky, the Morlocks are following him from the shadow. You see the eyes light up. They look like, you know, Jawa yeah. eyes, basically. But they're blinking. Every once in a yeah. while they blink. And that's just such a perfect touch to make them feel even more alive. In the book, I, I would say that what we ended up with on screen is not too far off from what is described in the book. I mean, oh, they're described okay. as these ape-like creatures with this light hair and these eyes, you know, these kind of glowing eyes. I, You know, I think they kind of captured it. In the book, they're described as a little bit smaller. You know, they still, you know, again, 60s technology. They're not going to have a bunch of four-foot creatures, so they do their best with, you know, guys in suits. But that's okay. I like guys in suits. Oh, yeah. I love the look of the Morlocks. Uh, I understand why they wouldn't have gone with the design from the books. Part of it, though, you've got to have Weena be an attractive young woman for George, I'm sure. And you've got to have a monster. You've got to have monsters to put on the posters to bring the kids in, right? Mm-hmm. Does the air raid siren go off the following morning? Yes, that's well, but not quite yet. So what happens is he goes, they've discovered there are these wells. Oh, that's you know, there's right. This, there's these, yeah. these wells that George and Weena, they discover these wells and George looks down and hears this, this thumping sound coming from below and deduces that, you know, this has got to be how he can get into the Sphinx to get to his machine. He's got to get to his machine. So he takes off his jacket and lays it on the edge of the well and it's going to go down there. And Weena is telling him not to. She's standing there at the side. So as he starts climbing down, he gets partway down and then the air raid siren goes off. Yeah, there we go. This air raid siren that's very similar to the air raid siren that we heard back when he stopped in 1966. So a nice little callback to what we've already seen. And this airy siren has a hypnotic effect on all of the Eloy. It just puts them in this trance and they start making their way toward the Sphinx, which is now open. The doors are open now and they just start walking in kind of mindlessly. And you know, it's not to anything good. No, we don't know exactly how bad it is uh, yet. We'll find out here shortly, 
but they're just mindlessly going and George can't get them to stop no matter what he does. Yeah. He climbs back up the well and starts chasing after Weena, but loses track of her and is calling out her name, but everybody is oblivious. They're just hypnotized by this, this sound and walking blindly towards the Sphinx. And as he gets up to the front, the air raid siren stops and the door slams shut and he's still locked out and he can't find her anywhere and, and realizes that she's wandered in through that door. One thing that I found really cool, and this is something that I'm fascinated by when it comes to, uh, the really smart moments in movies that show what happens in a, either a post-apocalyptic setting, a la Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or whatever, the way language kind of evolves and how certain words take on new meanings. And after the air raid is done and the doors close and the Eli come out of it, they keep saying, it's okay. It's all clear. It's all clear, which is something that we heard earlier regarding what happens after the bombs drop and, and everything's okay. They say, everything's all clear. And mm -hmm. just to see that kind of carry over, I thought was a really cool and smart moment too. Absolutely. It's stretching it that anything like that would carry over 800,000 years. But That's true. In the context of the movie, it works. There's no way they'd all be speaking <laughs> English. There's no way they would even understand anything he's saying. There's no way they would still look like humans. Absolutely not. Yeah, he's going to go back in the well because he's got to go try to find right. Rena. So he finds his way down the well and starts working his way through the caverns and comes out, comes to a room, a big room, and starts to piece together, you know, what's going on. In one of the rooms, he sees a pile of human bones. And, and at that moment, and it's a very 60s, you know, kind of children's safe sort of way, uh, he, does, he figures out, through narration that they've become cannibals, the Morlocks. He makes that jump pretty quick. I don't know how very he does quickly. it, but very quickly. Now in the book, I'll jump back to the book again. There's okay. a little more of a logical deduction to how he gets to that point. Okay. Gets to the same point, And I think a little bit sooner than he does, than George does in the movie, but the same discovery now that he's discovered it, all of the Morlocks start to find their way out and see that he's there. And so that's when we get the epic, in the case of a 1960s George Powell movie anyways, the epic battle between George and the Morlocks and then the awakening, in a sense, of the Eloi at the same time. George, while putting up a fight, the Eloi are just cowering and... It's after a few moments of George throwing punches and lighting torches to fight back the Morlocks, which, are of course, super sensitive to bright light. So they're afraid of the fire. One of the Eloi sees what George is doing and looks down at his hand and forms a fist and starts fighting back, too. And that's great. And this is the moment where George has totally violated the prime directive. <laughs> and yeah, that's true. He is really kind of getting involved in what's happened here. The evolution, it's all gone. He's completely disrupted the society yeah. at this point. And so now you have the Eloy fighting the back against what ultimately was a system that was working, to be honest. You know, I mean, maybe you and I would look at it and George would look at it as, oh, how horrible. But... Is it? That's it's certainly subjective to a certain degree. It's what they've done. It's what yeah, they've been, it's, it's what they've been doing, and it's what it, the, the way it has been for thousands of years at this yeah. point. George, you kind of <laughs> yeah. 
but we forget. Yeah. And this is one of my favorite scenes. It's where you get all of the Morlock action. You have, you know, the best views of them. You have some really amusing moments where George punches a Morlock and he is thrown back towards a rock wall. And just from the one punch, the Morlock, you know, dies and blood starts, you know, in probably a more graphic moment, blood starts flowing out of his mouth because uh, he dies from one punch and getting slammed against the wall. That always shocks me, too, because, again, yeah. this movie has the sensibility or at least the visuals of a child's film, a kid's film. Right. It's got some pretty heady things in it, but, you and know, it's that, pretty kid safe. And then that happens. Yeah, exactly. That one moment uh, always catches me, too. It's like, oh, wait a second. They make it out. He destroys machinery. He leads the Eloy out to their escape through the wells again. As they get to the top, he tells them to throw down all the, the dry driftwood that's laying around. And <laughs> as they do that, fire starts shooting up. And then the entire area caves in in what is a great miniature shot. Oh, it's uh, awesome. Yeah. There you go. That's the end of the Morlock. Of course, there's no discussion of what's going to happen to the Eloy at this point because now they have no providers. And George even makes a comment in that in the narration. You know, now the Eloy will have to work for themselves. I'm like, well, you kind of <laughs> did that, pal. Yeah. <laughs> That's on you, buddy. <laughs> one of the Morlocks comes running up to him and says... Or one of the Eloy. Tells him that he's got to come this way. You know, the doors are open. So they run over there and George tells Weena to come with him. But she stays back. And so he runs in and gets into his time machine as Morlocks are coming up and and surrounding the time machine. He's fighting them off, which is actually a scene straight out of the book. Oh, OK. He gets into the machine. Yeah, that's, it's a really great moment. He punches a Morlock. And again, that Morlock goes against the wall and, you know, I guess is killed and slouches down and, and uh, is resting at the same time. He hits the uh, the machine and is accidentally going forward in time. So we get to see the, the Morlock decay. Disintegrate. <laughs> yeah. Which is a great effect. A nice stop motion. Yeah, effect. it is. I'll go back to the book again. This is where there's a huge deviation that I think is really fascinating. Okay. And I think it would be really fun to capture this on film. I, I, don't, I don't think even the 2002 movie doesn't really do this. There's a moment... Well, I should say a big scene, not more than a moment, where he's going forward in time because he hits the lever accidentally, really, and going forward. And he sees the passage of time. He sees the Morlock decay. And then he sees the destruction of the Sphinx around him and the passing of the sun overhead, just like at the beginning when he first starts going forward in time. But he's going so fast that he's watching the evolution of the sun and he's watching the sun decay and the entire planet oh, wow. start to die because he's going so far into the future and he decides he makes a conscious decision to i want to see how it ends where does this go what happens to the earth wow uh there's a great moment where he stops the machine in this really far off future where the sun is turning into a you know white dwarf or something and there's a crab, these giant white crab monsters that start coming up to the time machine oh, wow. when he stops. And, you know, there's all this great imagery that I think is a really good section of the book that was really forward thinking for, I, you know, what, 100, 100 years ago, whenever the book was written. Mm -hmm. 100, no, what did I say? It was more, more like 130 years ago. 
I, I think it would be really, really interesting for somebody to do that missing part I'm of the movie. Kind of realize that somehow. But then he realizes he's going forward, so he slows down carefully and starts going in reverse. You know, he goes back to 1900, you know, the beginning of the movie. And the one thing that we didn't mention was when, after he does the demonstration for his friends and he tells everybody to be here again at next Friday, they all show up and he comes bursting through the door, just all tattered and bruised and his clothes are torn. And that's because he just returned from this trip. Right. And that's actually the beginning of the movie. It's kind of nice bookends. But he goes back and tells the story to his friends and then leaves again. We discover, and this is something that, you know, I'm going to have to ask you this. He's taken three books with him to the future. See, I knew you were going to do it. (laughs) What books do you think he took? Well, in the book, he doesn't take any books. Oh, really? Okay. They never even say it. It's never even mentioned that he takes anything. Okay. As a matter of fact, the implication is that he's just going off to look at another future. They don't even assume that he's going back to the Eloy. Oh, okay. In the movie, there's this assumption that he's going back, you know, just like, all right, now he's got to go back to the Eloy and help them. Right. Which is kind of silly if you think about it in the sense, well, he doesn't really have to help him. I mean, that hasn't happened yet. Right. But uh, so now he's taken off with these three books and and Philby's ultimate question is, what books would you have taken when he's talking to the maid? I don't know what books I would take because you have to think about what was the purpose for him taking the books. I think the books were for education. So I imagine that he took probably a I mean, only three books. It's really hard to do this. Yeah, but right. A form of an encyclopedia or a history book on some topic of what would be good for world building, you know, some survivalist kind of book, right? Okay. What else? I mean, something, something to learn how to build or just, I mean, he's already got a mechanical knowledge. So he probably doesn't have to supplement it too much, but something along those lines. And then another book that's got to be more on, I don't know, just... A living. What would be a good book about living? You know, something about uh, society building. What would be a good story about or memoir or history book on society building? I mean, I mean, that's ultimately what he's doing now for myself. I don't know. I mean, I'm selfish. I, I would want to take. Let's see. You know, I've got a pretty good history of Hammer horror movies book <laughs> that I probably want to take. Um uh, you know, this brand new, I got this Jeff Bond, uh, the fantasy worlds of Irwin Allen. You know, I haven't read that yet. You know, I'd like, to, I'd like to go travel to some quiet time in the future where I could read that. <laughs> so it'd probably be something like that for me. Yeah. I, I think this came up when I talked about this movie with Christopher Page too. We were talking about what the books were and it, it has this kind of like, you know, we just read the story or saw the movie in grade school. And now the teacher wants us to write a paper about what books we would have taken if it was us and that sort of thing, you know? <laughs> And given who H.G. Wells was and the whole point of the story about the scientists doing stuff, I don't think he would have brought a religious text. I, I don't no. think he would have brought a Bible or anything like that. I, I just no, not the vibe that I get from who this guy is and what I've read of Wells. But yeah, I would imagine I would think maybe like a Grace Anatomy or something, you know, about first aid or the human body or something would be important. Absolutely. Medical text of some kind. Sure. S- especially since 
now they have to fend for themselves and uh, they're going to get old now, which is something that wasn't happening before. You know, mm-hmm. Morlocks ate them before they got too old. So, <laughs> you know, now how do we handle our geriatric care? <laughs> you know? But yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough. It is hard. Yeah. Only three books. That's insane to me. You can't rebuild without just, with just three. <laughs> three books. I think it's a really great way to end a movie. It is. Because it, I think it's it's fun conversation starter for one thing when, you know, you watch this movie with a bunch of people and he's like, well, what books would you take? But I think it's impossible. I think he took three books his first trip and then came back and took another 10 hey, there you later go. because because he's got the time machine. That's the funny thing is he's not limited. You no, got the not. time machine. You go drop off the three books and then you mm-hmm. come back and then you you bring a bunch of matches your second trip, you know, like a crate of matches. And then you go back. That's the problem with the time machine. He doesn't have much cargo space. So he's probably got to make more trips than uh, than normal uh, normally you'd want to. But And why take books from his era? You know, why not go further ahead a little <laughs> bit before yeah. warheads and science has advanced even more and get those science books, you know? Yeah. Who knows? I love the movie, though. I mean, it's a great way to end it yeah, with Alan looking at the screen or at the camera, basically, what books would you have taken? You know, very let's involve the audience now and bring you into the story the way that George brought Alan into the story by telling him the tale. And it's just, it's so well done and so well directed. You know, when you think George Powell, I don't think, yes, this man was a master director. I think the visual effects and the eye candy, but he really nailed the direction here. He yeah. created some really good character interaction between George and uh, uh, Trilby. I keep saying Alan, but you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, they really like that connection there and that communication. And sure, Weena doesn't have a lot to do. They give her some pretty boring movements and lines, but for the most part, she does a really good job with what she has. It's good. And the visuals on this movie are the thing that stick with me the most. This production design, the effects, you know, that time machine is just a, pu- a beautiful piece of art. It really is. It is. I mean, you keep, keep saying it's what Victorian, it's got this Victorian touch, that sort of thing. But it also has, you know, this element of steampunk to it a little bit, this kind of proto steampunk to it, which I've always found fascinating as a design. I think I'm not really a big steampunk person, but, you know, it's kind of cool to look at. It looks cool. If I could have a prop. Yeah. Uh, and this is a card in the classic five. What prop would you want from a classic monster movie? I'd go with the time machine. Give me the time machine. It's definitely the top of my list. Yeah. The head from, you know, the cane and the Wolfman, the time machine. Uh, I don't know what else I'd put in there, but yeah, it's, it's hey, iconic. And there's one guy that happens to have them both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know where he lives. So yeah. maybe we need to take a road trip. No, I'm just <laughs> Um, and I'd love to meet Bob Burns at some point. I know he's kind of getting up there and all that, but I'd still love to meet him. This has been a fantastic chat and it's a fantastic movie. I love showing it to people and, uh, my kids, I have a nine year old and a seven year old. They're well versed in the time machine because they have, I made them watch it. Parenting win. And they know Morlocks very well because they've seen mom and dad dressed as Morlocks and, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to the next time we can talk about a, another George Powell movie. There's so many of them, you know, looking through the list of his films. I like so many of them, you know, War of the Worlds, you know, When Worlds Collide, uh, you know, Destination Moon. They're all so fun. Atlantis, The Lost Continent, I really like. Yeah. Really like that one. Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. I I don't know how many times I've seen that movie. I always wonder if people have trouble with that movie 
in the same way they have trouble with Mickey Rooney's performance in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, with Tony Randall basically uh, playing the Asian man. But the movie is so magical that, you know, I, I, I feel like people could look past it. It's, uh, I have heard that people have trouble with it, but then I, that's another one I haven't seen, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> You haven't seen it. I have not seen it, man. Does that mean you haven't covered it on your show? That's exactly what that means. Oh, my gosh. Well, (laughs) Derek, I think we just found one of our next movies. (laughs) I'm taking notes. (laughs) I'm writing things down. I mean, again, it's one of these things. I know what it is, basically. I know what it's about, basically. I know what it looks like. Just never saw it. So. So, yeah, that'll be on the list. You know, I love having you on. I love talking with uh, Monster Kids and people who, and I said this about Frank when I had him on, I love it when Monster Kids do good. You know, when Monster Kids are able to find a way to engage with what made them fans of this stuff. And with the work that you're doing, with the design and, and the making that you're involved with, I know you're not making monster movies and that sort of thing, but you're still in there, man. You're still playing and you're still making stuff. Uh, you posted online some pictures of these four hands that you that came out of a 3D oh, printer. The yeah. way they're set up, man, that, I, I don't know what those are for. I don't care because <laughs> them by themselves, I'd put them all over my walls, man. That's just yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's fun stuff. Yeah, little making little tiny puppets for a, a, a theatrical production. Nice. I, you know, I, I love what I do. And uh, I'm always trying to squeeze in a monster here or there, you know, in our work. And, and uh, every once in a while we get one through. And sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. You know, I get to make robots and dinosaurs for a living, so I can't complain. Hey, there you go. That's my, that's my, always my line. Is there anything uh, that you can talk about that the listeners might be able to follow up with you or see something that you've done or? You know, one of the things, um, you know, they can go see now. That's probably the easiest stuff. Uh, Universal Studios, you know, we've got some nice new dinosaurs that are making uh, appearances and you can go visit uh, a life-size walking triceratops that uh, I helped birth and some baby uh, velociraptors and those are all at Universal Studios Hollywood and then also you can find video of all of those guys online and those are some recent things. Upcoming things, uh, some of that's a little, it's hard to talk about the upcoming things. They haven't been announced yet. Yeah, yeah, I know you can't. We have some fun stuff coming this this year. Oh, absolutely. I will say gigantic animatronics. Right on. Gigantic animatronics. So there'll be some fun stuff. Right on. Well, let's get you back on um, before things get too busy for you with everything going on and and all that. I appreciate you working with your schedule with me and and making this happen, man. And we'll try to do it earlier in the day when they're not both so loopy. A couple of things here about what you just heard. That conversation with Charles, that happened later in the evening than either one of us typically are up and running and being on 100%. So, yeah, there were a few times where I kind of flubbed a little bit. And, yeah, we also know that when it came to the scene in the movie with the library and the crumbling book, that wasn't Weena. It was another one of the Eloy that was there. It's just as we were talking we just kind of got excited about that scene and, and I didn't go back and Charles didn't go back. And yeah, anyway, that scene is awesome, by the way. One of my absolute favorite scenes in all of classic sci-fi dumb, I think. That crumbling book is just cool. Huge thanks to Charles for making this happen. I really appreciate him working with me schedule-wise to get this recording in kind of under the wire to make Flashback February work. I was kind of running out of content before the month ran out. He was my cleanup guy. And I think we did a pretty good job. Charles, thanks again, man. (laughs) 
What is the eerie secret behind the seven faces of Dr. Lau? Do they come from another world, or are they just one mysterious being? When more unusual pictures are made, you may be sure George Powell will make them. His War of the Worlds, Time Machine, and Destination Moon are now joined by the strange and fascinating adventures of Dr. Lau and his amazing companions. You wish your future told? How do you do? The name is Merlin. I am the greatest magician the world has ever known. <laughs> Hi there. Do I look familiar to you? What in the world is a Medusa? A Medusa, dear heart, is a creature with uh, snakes on her head. And uh, if you look at her face, you turn to stone. I'll show her! What kind of oriental hocus-pocus is going on around here? I, sir, am a major mystery. Out of nowhere he came. A mysterious stranger. And for those he opposed or defended, life was never again the same. This town ain't big enough for you and me, partner. A magician, surely, but one who made his magic with such things as love's young dream and the fun in a little boy's heart. Here truly is entertainment for all ages. I was born in the year 1204. I am 7,000. 322 years old. I'm eight going on nine. Here is the mysterious beauty of the Far East and the roaring action of the Far West. The thrill spectacle of the city that never was and the most fabulous fish story in history. A genuine bona fide sea serpent. In the water, he is small, insignificant, petite, but out of the water, and he doubles his size every 10 seconds until he reaches his full growth. Just imagine a sea monster who can't stand the water. How about that? Oh, oh, I got him. Oh, I got him. Oh, <laughs> that's showbiz. Christopher, what insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? <laughs> People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but... There are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show? Oh, we'll do. 
Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Journey into double terror with the late night double feature. With X, the fiend from beyond space, and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. We need to talk about the Rondo Hat and Classic Horror Awards. The ballot has been announced, and once again, you guys and gals have helped to put Monster Kid Radio under consideration for the best multimedia category. And I got to tell you guys and gals, I, I love this. Thank you so much for making Monster Kid Radio part of the Rondos once again. I think every year that Monster Kid Radio has been in production, we've been on the ballot as a nominee. And we did win that one time. And, you know, I, I would love I would love to get a second win. So if you haven't already voted, please consider voting for Monster Kid Radio for Best Multimedia. Now, I know that voting can sometimes feel a little clunky. It's an old school way of doing things. You just emailed David Colton, the guy who runs the Rondos, your ballot. That's it. You don't have to vote in every category. In fact, if you haven't seen the nominees in a particular category, I would recommend making a point to checking out those nominees before voting. Please don't vote blindly. I mean, vote honestly. You know what I mean? And I'd like to give a special shout out to Josh Kennedy. Josh Kennedy's House of the Gorgon is up for Best Independent Film. Josh and I are part of the Monster Conservancy, and I would love to see the Monster Conservancy get represented on the winner's list this year at the Rondos. Head over to RondoAward.com to learn more about the Rondos, to learn more specifics about how to vote. But I'll just tell you, all you got to do is email David at Taraco at AOL.com. And that's spelled T as in Tom, A-R-A-C as in cat, O at AOL.com. I'll make sure it's listed in the show notes as well. If you've already voted for Monster Kid Radio for Best Multimedia, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And maybe... Maybe my single Rondo Hatton Award will get a tag team partner this year with another win. We'll see. Congratulations to all the nominees and best of luck. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I really appreciate everybody being on board and helping spread the word by retweeting the tweets and sharing posts about new episodes of the podcast. I know we've gotten a handful of new listeners lately. Some came in thanks to Flashback February and, and this month's guests promoting their own appearances on the show. So if you are new to the show, welcome aboard. I hope you enjoyed your stay and I hope you come back next time. You can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over on our website at monsterkidradio.net. Over here, you're going to find links to everything that we talked about here in the show. I'll make sure there's also some Amazon affiliate links to the various movies and books that have come up in this episode because if you buy 
any of these things through those Amazon affiliate links, we get a little bit of a kickback and that helps support the show. Our contact information is over there as well. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line, our phone number, it's 503-479-5657. It's 503-4795-MKR. There will be a link to the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards and the Classic Horror Film Board. Please consider voting and please consider voting for Monster Kid Radio for Best Multimedia. Our Patreon campaign is over there, and I know I keep saying it, next month, I promise, next month we're going to be updating the tiers and kind of revising how the Patreon works. So if you are interested in becoming a patron or want to remain a patron, stay tuned. There are going to be some changes coming to that. Next week on the show. Okay. When I had Charles on the show, he was the fifth recording I did last week. So what I'm saying is, is that I've got a number of conversations in the can and next week's I'm very, very excited about. It's a roundtable discussion. It's me. It's Joshua Kennedy. It's Christopher Armem, and it's Stephen D. Sullivan. We are four of the seven members of the Monster Conservancy, which you can find out more about over at SaveMonsters.com. And we're going to talk about the universal dark universe, the status of the dark universe, talk about how we thought it went, what they're doing now, what we would do differently. Now, I know that just within the past couple of days, Universal came out. Somebody from Universal said, hey, you know, the Dark Universe is pretty much done. We didn't know that when we were recording. In fact, I'd like to think that Universal was kind of listening in to our conversation. And they're like, hey, you know what? We probably ought to let these guys know what's up. So, you know what? You can thank us for that. Actually, you could probably thank Josh, Chris, and Steve. All I did was hit record. Anyway, that's coming up next week. I'm really excited about that. After that, I'll go ahead and tell you. Joe Stuber's coming back. Joe Stuber hasn't been on the show in forever. And he and I are going to talk about a movie that, well, we never got around to talking about before. In fact, we kind of set it aside thinking, yeah, maybe not really relevant. But you know what? It's my show, my rules. And I wanted to talk about Abbott and Costello go to Mars. So Joe Stuber and I will be doing that in two weeks. You can also look forward to this year's upcoming take on March Madness. Got something pretty exciting planned for that as well. Steve Turek is leading the charge on that once again. And well, Steve's the man. All sorts of great stuff coming up over the next few weeks. I'm excited to get to it. So I'm going to wrap this show up so I can get back to editing and be ready for next week's episode. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution. Non-commercial, no derivatives. 3.0 unported license. Of course, it doesn't apply to the song Leviathan Finity. That belongs to the band Bat City Surfers. It's from their album, Bat City Surfers Must Die. You can find them at batcitysurfers.bandcamp.com. Go check them out. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Ciao.